Dense Friends, and welcome to the Dense Edit Podcast. I'm Margaret Fuhrer. And I'm Courtney Escoyne. We are editors at Dance Media, and in this week's episode, we will add our voices to the huge chorus of arts world folks paying tribute to Stephen Sondheim, the just massively influential lyricist and composer who died on Friday at age 91. We will talk about the return of the Nutcracker, because we are fully in Nutcracker season now, and examine how productions of the show have changed this year due to COVID restrictions and also due to ongoing and increasingly urgent conversations about racial stereotypes. And we will discuss the new NFTs offered by ballerina Natalia Asipova because that is a fascinating and rather unexpected move with some potentially significant implications. So quite a range of topics this week. Um, I'm tired of boring you all with housekeeping right at the beginning of the episode. So here's everything I have to say in 10 seconds or fewer, I promise. Don't forget to rate and review and subscribe to this podcast. Give us a follow on Instagram at the.dance.edit and Twitter at dance underscore edit. Courtney's timing me. She's making me nervous. And make sure to check out our exclusive audio interview series, The Dance Edit Extra on Apple Podcasts. We've got some super delicious episodes of The Extra coming up soon. So do check that out. Did I make it? You know what? I I made you nervous, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna count it. <laughs> you cut me some slack. Okay. All right. Now it's time for our usual dance headline rundown. Here we go. All right. Uh, members of the Milwaukee Dancing Grannies and a youth dance team were among those killed and injured when a car drove through a holiday parade in Waukesha, Wisconsin, on November 21st. Uh, three dancing grannies lost their lives. 79-year-old Virginia Sorensen, a.k.a. Jenny, who did a lot of choreography for the troupe, 71-year-old Leanna Owens, and 52-year-old Tamara Durand. Several members of the Waukesha Extreme Dance Team were wounded. Five of those children were admitted to the ICU, um, and both of those groups have set up GoFundMes. We will link to those GoFundMes in the show notes. Um, just so incredibly tragic. Uh, we have a roller coaster of a headline rundown, as we usually do. On a decidedly happier note, American Ballet Theater has announced that Janet Rollet, currently the general manager of Beyonce's media and management company Parkwood Entertainment, will become its next CEO and executive director. Rolay will be the first person of color in this kind of leadership role at the company. At Parkwood, she helped produce Beyonce's history-making Coachella performance and the homecoming documentary about that performance and the film Black is King, among many other accomplishments. She begins work at ABT on January 3rd, and there is so much excitement in the ballet world about this appointment. I mean, so eager to see what her vision will be for ABT. Well, and it's it's one of those things where there's so much to say here, but also I think we're all just eagerly awaiting to see what she does and also what mm -hmm. she does in concert with whoever ABT's next artistic leader is going to be. The next big question for ABT, yeah. And many ballet companies right now. And the, half the ballet world, yep. <laughs> Uh, and the former home of Cedar Lake Contemporary Ballet is reopening as a new arts center in Manhattan. Chelsea Factory will function as a pop-up initiative for five years, offering residencies to artists working in music, dance, theater, and film, and providing rehearsal and performance space to help accelerate post-pandemic recovery for the arts. 
the first cohort of resident artists includes Hope Boykin and Andrea Miller, who will each receive $10,000 stipends, studio space, and production support. Uh, there are also plans for collaborations with the Joyce Theater and to offer subsidized rehearsal space rentals to individuals and community organizations. Uh, performances are set to begin at the center in January. It's really cool seeing that space getting used in this way. I was just going to say, it's great news all around. And I know that it's a relatively minor part of it that it's the old Cedar Lake space, but it does just feel right. It feels kind of lovely. Yeah. Well, it's a fantastic space. It's it's good that it's getting it's put so to beautiful. use in something that's going to support dance. Yep. So over in what feels like an alternate arts universe, aka Hollywood, <laughs> there is another Magic Mike movie coming. Both Channing Tatum and director Steven Soderbergh will return for Magic Mike's Last Dance, which will premiere at an as-yet-unspecified date on HBO Max. And in case you're out of this particular loop, Magic Mike has become a huge business since the first film premiered back in 2012. The franchise now includes a live stage show and premiering December 16th, a reality competition series called Finding Magic Mike, which I'm all about. And all I really have to say about this is that Twitch, Stephen Twitch boss, had better be on the cast list for this new movie. (laughs) He was the best part of Magic Mike XXL. Let's bring him back. Which, you know, high bar, because there's some incredible talent in those films. Yeah, it's pretty fantastic dance talent there. Yep. Yeah. Uh, And Lin-Manuel Miranda recently told CNBC that despite conventional wisdom saying that filmed versions of Broadway shows make audiences less likely to buy tickets to see those shows in person, uh, all indications are that the summer 2020 release of Hamilton, aka hashtag Hamilfilm, on streaming service Disney Plus only increased the show's popularity and amplified the demand to see the show live. Uh, So that news obviously isn't surprising to us, but it is encouraging to hear that we were right. Uh, for a lot of reasons that we've gone in depth on in this podcast. Yeah. I mean, I guess the caveat is that Hamilton isn't exactly your average musical, so slightly different rules might apply to it. But still, yeah, this is exactly the outcome we were all hoping for and and thinking would happen when these filmed versions of shows began dropping. All right, I'm going to do my best to channel Lydia for this next headline item. This week, BTS returned to live in-person concerts for the first time since 2019. Right now, they're at Los Angeles' SoFi Stadium, and by all accounts, they've picked up right where they left off. They have an intricately choreographed two-and-a-half-hour set, which, by the way, features a big crew of dancers from the lab, including our favorite, Sienna Lalau. It's great. Um. I mean, obviously, since their last time on stage in front of a live audience, BTS has achieved even more massive mainstream stardom, just like a different level of global cultural influence. So anyway, it's great that they're back out there doing what they do best again. All good news there, really. Uh, And iconic Indigenous Australian dancer and actor David Gopalil recently passed away at age 68, four years after being diagnosed with lung cancer. Uh, After his breakout role in the 1971 film Walkabout, he had a long and distinguished career as an actor and dancer, appearing in films like Mad Dog Morgan and Crocodile Dundee and performing at the opening of the Sydney Opera House in 1973. He was appointed a member of the Order of Australia in 1987 and received a Lifetime Achievement Award from the National Aborigines and Islanders Day Observance Committee in 2019. It's a huge loss, but I think we're very lucky to have so much of him and his performances uh, recorded on film. Yeah, 
Yeah. Oh, man, a heavy, heavy start to the episode this week, because in our first discussion segment today, we want to take a moment to remember Stephen Sondheim, the genius who just fundamentally altered the shape of American musical theater. Um, He was not, of course, a choreographer or a dancer, but the musicals that Sondheim put his pen to, particularly West Side Story, and also a number of the works he did with the director and producer Hal Prince, they offered so much richness and so many opportunities to dancers and choreographers. And then Sondheim helped inspire and support a whole new generation of musical theater artists, including dance artists, who followed his lead in helping to revitalize the form. And I I keep thinking that this news shouldn't have felt as shocking as it did. Like Sondheim was 91, but Mm -hmm. I think everyone's reactions showed just how... Like, I don't, it's a thing. I think people are still grappling with how to even process and talk about, you know, Stephen Sondheim has died. And, you know, it was very sudden. Like, it wasn't as though he had been ill. He had just been in the theater mm-hmm. the week before yeah. seeing plays that were about Did to a close. a doubleheader. Yeah, seeing plays that were about to close, going to uh, the company revival on Broadway. Uh, you know, like, he was still very active. He just announced a new show he was working on back in September. Um, It's wild to say that someone who was 91, his death was untimely, but it feels that way. But I also, uh, as some friends of mine have pointed out, I think uh, Sondheim's huge body of work also uniquely kind of prepared us as a community to honor and let go and process the grief of this like his uh Mm -hmm. work really is uniquely suited to that i keep thinking of uh there's a line in into the woods uh sometimes people leave you halfway through the wood and that that's what i've Mm -hmm. been thinking about a lot i know i feel like half the tributes i've been seeing to sondheim are just his own words how his own words best capture the grieving process yeah yeah who could say it better well, and I also I also think like, man, because here's the thing, right? Because like Sondheim is a composer lyricist. He is not ostensibly a dance person. Although like, honestly, if he had just done West Side Story and that was it, I think we would still need to be shouting him out. But obviously, mm-hmm. he did so mm-hmm. much more than that. But his web of influence, it is so vast that I think if you take away Sondheim, American theater today just looks unrecognizable. Like the butterfly mm-hmm. effect is so huge and it's unimaginable and like like without him we don't get jonathan larson and rent mm-hmm. we don't get lin-manuel miranda and hamilton um and you know like even less directly in the lineage like we don't get a chorus line like that kind of yeah. show that's like psychological and character driven and emotionally complex and it like pushes up the structures of what theater can be and whose perspectives a musical can show like that's sondheim I mean, and we can talk in a more direct way, too, about his influence on the way that dance has evolved on Broadway specifically. I mean, I don't even think we have to talk about West Side Story. Obviously, that's had a huge influence. But don't forget that he also wrote the lyrics for Gypsy, another Jerome Robbins project. Mm -hmm. And I mean, some of those songs are dance staples. Can you imagine a dance competition without at least one routine to let me entertain you or you got to have a gimmick. I have not seen a single one without a routine to one of those songs. And then, of course, his collaborations with Hal Prince, some of those were also collaborations with Michael Bennett. They helped launch Michael Bennett. I mean, he choreographed Company and Follies. Follies was majorly dancey. It's like everybody yeah. forgets how dancey Follies was. And then these works and revivals of them have offered opportunities to all kinds of choreographers and dancers. They've reached into all corners of the musical theater world. Um, 
I also just love that Sondheim was such a proactive cheerleader of the younger creatives who were kind of either taking on musicals that he'd written or making their own new works, as you were saying. Jonathan Larson, Lin-Manuel. He was always interested in what was new and next. And, you know, I just watched Tick, Tick, Boom, and I, I don't have entirely positive feelings about it, but I thought it captured that incredibly well. His his mentorship of Jonathan Larson and specifically that voicemail scene, which I didn't realize until after I saw it, that was actually Sondheim's voice in that voicemail recording that he's leaving for Jonathan Larson, encouraging him. And it's not what it was that Jonathan Larson Mm -hmm. wrote. It is Sondheim wrote it. Sondheim's writing. Yeah. Yeah. Which, what a gift. Yeah. And I think think if we can take, if we could and should take anything from Sondheim, it is that effort to be present in your community, regardless of what your place in it is, and to be Mm -hmm. encouraging of other people in your community and taking the time, even if it's just two sentences, to be like, hey, I saw your thing. I appreciated it for this reason. Keep going. Like, I think if we all took the time to do that whenever we felt that, we would have a much richer uh, and more, even more supportive and a wonderful community than we already do. That's the other kind of tribute that's been all over the place is people posting the typed letters they received mm-hmm. from Sondheim after he watched their, their that beautiful signature. <laughs> yeah. We'll link to several different Sondheim tributes in the show notes. So in our second discussion section today, it's time to talk once again about the Nutcracker because it is really and truly back. It is full force happening. Live nut performances have returned pretty much everywhere, but many of these productions look very different this year. And there are two main reasons for these evolved Nutcrackers. One is COVID precautions, just making sure that all the people, and especially the children, both on stage and in the audience, are safe. And the other is a reconsideration of the way the show portrays Asians, with more and more companies finally eliminating racial stereotypes in the Chinese and Arabian divertisements in favor of updated choreography and costumes that celebrate rather than caricature Asian culture. So let's start by talking about the COVID updates. Yeah, so... Several different companies have taken different tacks on this because obviously Nutcracker tends to feature a lot of child performers. One of the big pieces of news that broke around all of this uh, earlier in the fall was that New York City Ballet was saying, okay, you have to be fully vaccinated in order to participate. And because of where vaccine statuses were at the time, that meant anyone under the age of 12 was automatically off the table. So that meant those 8 to 11-year-olds who normally would be getting to come in and do roles weren't getting to do them. But it also meant that the younger teenagers uh, at School of American Ballet uh, were getting to come in and do these roles, which created a whole cadre of uh, logistical things to figure out and work out. Uh, In addition to, I did not realize this until recently, apparently SAB... And City Ballet opened up casting to beyond just SAB to like other New York City area ballet schools, which is wild and never would have occurred to me that this would ever happen. But I hope they keep doing it. I hope that kind of becomes a tradition because I think it's sort of fantastic. Yeah. But then like, you know, other companies did keep children in the cast and are doing things like coming up with custom uh, masks to match the costumes, uh, reducing the number of dancers in certain roles or certain scenes. 
you know, asking that hair and makeup be done by parents before they come to the theater so that the kids are in the theater for less time. So there's a lot of different approaches that have come out of this. And there's also testing protocols that are in place, vaccine mandates for those who are old enough to have gotten them from the beginning of the process. So there's a lot of logistical considerations that are coming into play to try to make this happen safely. Yeah, you know, going back to the city ballet story, I'm sorry, I know we're all city ballet all the time on this podcast. It's just because we're in New York City. We see see a lot lot. of them. (laughs) But the Times piece sort of took as a given, like, oh, well, of course, in the past, they didn't cast older people because they're just too tall for the costumes. They could never overcome that hurdle. That was kind of the baseline of the piece. And, and, that shouldn't be as big a deal as it is. Like, and and mm-hmm. featuring older, taller dancers, it's counterbalancing this kind of terrible thing that usually happens where really eager, gifted children are told, oh, you're just too tall to be cast. For some of these kids, that's the first of what will unfortunately probably be many times they're told, your body doesn't fit. And it took COVID to break that cycle, but the breaking of it seems like a net positive to me. I I can't help but agree because I think that logic, uh, like the given logic of like, oh, well, the costumes aren't going to fit is the same logic that like people use to justify like companies continuing to weigh dancers, uh, continuing mm-hmm. to have quote unquote fat talks, uh, but, mm-hmm. you know, hiding it under more currently acceptable terminology. Uh, but mm-hmm. it's it's the same mindset and culture that allows that to happen. And, you know, I, I do get the desire for verisimilitude, for sure. But I do think there's a certain point where it's like, well, hey, our suspension of disbelief is already at a certain point. <laughs> there is like a tree that grows to be ginormous sized and there's giant rats. And, you I know, say, we do have people as rats. So I think we can make the there's leap. A certain, yeah, there's slightly a taller children. Disbelief already happening here. <laughs> so like it's theater, guys. We can keep going with this. All right. We could talk about this for a long time, but let's move on because the other half of this is also important, talking about the changes to the way the productions, many productions are depicting Asians in The Nutcracker. Yeah, which I think is something that uh, was talked about a lot last year in our year without Nutcracker um, and something Mm -hmm. Phil Chan, one of the co-founders of Final Bow for Yellowface, who has been so instrumental in all of this. I mean, shout out to Final Bow for Yellowface. I feel like we're just perpetually shouting out Final Bow for Yellowface and we should be. As we should be. doing excellent work. Yeah. They're great. Uh, But, you know, I was seeing him on Twitter and elsewhere being like, hey, you got the URL for Nutcracker. Are you going to take the time to rethink the way you guys are doing these variations and these stereotypes that you have in place? And like a lot of places, the answer ended up being yes. And Mm -hmm. that is so heartening. Um, In particular, I love Pacific Northwest Ballet's uh, new green tea cricket. The costume is so charming. And doesn't that feel so right? with the music too like that it's it's yeah it's ingenious yeah and they were able to you know get the changes approved by the balanchine trust which was you know a factor and a hurdle that they overcame but like there are like across the board a lot of changes being made uh to make these seem less like caricatures and make it less alienating Mm -hmm. and what a great opportunity for creativity this is too like not just to correct wrongs, but also to make interesting and respectful new art. It's all around, all around such a fantastic thing. Um, We'll link to the New York Times story about the companies reimagining their Chinese and Arabian divertisements in the show notes. All right, 
Finally, today, we'd like to unpack the news that star ballerina Natalia Asapova is auctioning what are purportedly the ballet world's first NFTs. And no, Courtney, I'm not going to make you explain NFTs again when we were talking about possible discussion topics. Courtney was like, don't make me do another NFT explainer. Um, Actually, if you want to hear her first NFT explainer, which is very good, you can go back to listen to that in episode 69. But I'll just give the like bare bones basics. NFT stands for non-fungible token. And what an NFT does is transform a digital work of art or some other kind of digital collectible into a one-of-a-kind verifiable asset stored on the blockchain. I think that's all the detail we need for this story. So between now and December 10th, three NFT videos of Asapova are being offered by the auction house Bonhams. And just that news itself is fascinating. Like, I'm not sure I'd have put my money on Asapova as the first ballet star to sell NFTs for starters. But the Guardian story about all of this also included interesting information about what Asapova and her partner Jason Kittleberger plan to do with the funds from the auction. And there are questions here, too, about the larger potential of these kinds of alternative funding sources for dance, how bringing ballet into the crypto world might broaden its appeal. There are also less positive aspects to this kind of development. Courtney, I know you have thoughts. I I do have thoughts, but like just starting with like what this news even is, because, <laughs> whoa, that's the whole thing. So there are three pieces, uh, essentially video recordings of Asapova dancing that are going to be up for auction as NFTs, two of which are from Giselle. One of them is the Act 2 entrance. Uh, the other is a solo from Act 2. And then a third longer form piece uh, is a piece that was choreographed by Jason Kittleberger. It's a potida for the two of them called Left Behind. And it will be like a video of a live show of them dancing that. And that is going to be what the NFT is. Uh, the Giselle pieces are currently estimated to be, they think they're going to go for between 8,000 and 12,000 pounds. Uh, and left behind, which is going to be a longer piece, uh, they're estimating between thirty thousand and fifty thousand pounds, which is bananas. Just, <laughs> just saying those amounts just kind of stopped me in my tracks a little bit. Well, here's the interesting thing, though, is that right now, as we speak, the auction is underway, and there's still there's still about a week left in it. But the current high bids on those videos. The Giselle ones are at 5,500 pounds each and left behind is at 8,000 pounds with a week left to go. So there is some real demand here. It's wild. It's just, I don't know what else to say other than wild. And I think, I mean, I do think it's a fascinating opportunity, right? Because the thing that I think really first grabbed our interest in the dance world about NFTs was it being this like alternate approach to ownership and also to monetization of ownership of a dance anything. Mm -hmm. Although the licensing does go entirely to whoever purchases it, which creates a whole other like interesting, I can imagine future quandary of well they're allowed to display or use this in any way they see fit once they have that full licensing so what are they going to do with that i can totally imagine there being problems with that at some point in the future it's gonna be really fun to watch that play out in court anyway not maybe not with this specifically just with something potentially and i think it's fascinating that asapova is saying that what they want to do is fund their own dance company because you know so much Mm -hmm. of her career has been really characterized by her wanting more independence wanting to shape her own career so as a idea of a potential funding source for a dance company this is fascinating and also the idea that they are considering doing more of these to continue funding it fascinating Mm -hmm. 
the places where I have hesitations are one, creating NFTs in the first place, huge startup costs, uh, which is not going to be available to a lot of people and a lot of organizations. Second thing, NFTs based on cryptocurrency, cryptocurrency mining is like terrible for the environment, uh, which mm-hmm. I don't I don't want to get into a whole thing. That's a different podcast. Yeah. yeah, it's a different podcast. People who are smarter than me have talked about it. So it's complicated. It is complicated. <laughs> the TLDR for all of this, it's complicated. <laughs> I think there's some smart reasoning happening when you talk about the amount of speculation happening in the crypto world right now and trying to tap into some of that and using it to benefit dance. Okay, I think that's kind. Of, that's a that's a good idea, at least in principle. I think when you started to talk about copyright issues that might come up down the road. I was actually thinking about copyright issues that might have come into play as they were choosing which pieces to feature because mm-hmm. Giselle's stuff I think is all in the common domain right now be, so that's relatively yeah. kosher. But you know, the left behind piece that the duet that they're doing seemed like kind of an odd choice and a part of me was wondering if the reason they chose it was because they had the rights to the choreography, the music, and the video. When you're talking about dance NFTs, you have to consider all of those things mm-hmm. unless it's a silent NFT. Again, and we've talked about this many times, copyright law in the United States when it comes to dance is so behind, just so behind. Extremely complicated. Yeah. Anyway. um, So yeah, lots to talk about, lots to think about here. Very curious to see how it all goes and what the NFTs go for. Yeah. Um, We have linked to the Guardian story about this whole adventure in the show notes. All right. That's it for us this week. Thanks, everyone, for joining us. We'll be back next week for more discussion of the news that's moving the dance world. Keep learning, keep advocating, and keep dancing. Mind how you go, friends. The Dance Edit Podcast is a product of Dance Media, publisher of Dance Magazine, Dance Spirit, Point, Dance Teacher, Dance Business Weekly, and the Dance Edit Newsletter. Our hosts are Amy Brandt, Courtney Escoyne, Margaret Fuhrer, and Lydia Murray. Our music is by Celestine, with special thanks to Broadway Dance Center for helping us record those footfall sounds. Find out more about The Dance Edit and subscribe to our daily newsletter at thedanceedit.com. Thank you.